If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. The remarks this morning will just simply take that verse phrase by phrase. In order to set it up in verse 1, 2, and 3, the disciples point the attention of Jesus to the temple. He's not impressed at all. He's not impressed by how many we seat. He's impressed by how many we send. He says all of this stuff is going to come down. They realize he's talking about the end, so they ask him, what are the signs of the end, verse 3? And Jesus gives a litany of signs through the next few verses up through verse 13. And then he comes to the culminant definitive sign, the one that is not yet completed, which also happens to be our mandate. So let's read verse 14 together. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Let's take it clause by clause, this gospel. If we are to summarize the gospel as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, we would say that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose on the third day. That's beautiful, that's pithy, but Paul wrote that decades after Jesus said this gospel. And Jesus talked of this gospel before he went to the cross, before he died, before he rose. Mark chapter 1 says he appeared preaching this gospel. Galatians 3.18 says the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham. Romans 1 verse 2 says the gospel of God was promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So if we are to understand the gospel in the way that Jesus did when he first preached it, when he mandated that that gospel should be preached to all the nations, what is that gospel? What did Abraham and the patriarchs understand? How would you explain the gospel if you couldn't use any New Testament lingo, you couldn't say Jesus, you couldn't say cross, you couldn't say resurrection or anything churchy? What was that gospel? For if we want the end to come, we better know it well. You have heard, of course, that the word gospel literally means good news. And in order for news to be good, there has to be some context of bad news. So what is the bad news that makes the good news so sweet? In truncated form, the bad news is that because of our sin and our rebellion, the whole world is under the wrath of a holy God and none can earn his reprieve, none can by works appease his anger. And the good news about the bad news, the gospel that Jesus preached in love is this. God saves us from God for God. This is why the old hymn state, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace my fears relieved, or the rock of ages hymn. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me whole. Or the modern hymn, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfying. 
Let me make a case for this from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 11, God says, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. About midnight, I'll go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn will die. Chapter 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt. I'll strike all the firstborn. I'll execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood will be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy when I strike the land of Egypt. The Bible is shockingly clear. The people were not saved by the blood from Pharaoh. The people were not saved from Pharaoh's soldiers. The people were not even saved from sin, but the effects of sin, because it's actually not our sin that slays us. It is the judgment of a holy God on that sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he saved us from the wrath of God. For the gospel is simply this, that the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the joys of God. Now, I know that's shocking in didactic form, so let me use narrative to make the same point. The tale is told of an African king who had a problem in his kingdom. A chicken thief was running wild. The king decreed that when the chicken thief was caught, he would be lashed with a whip laced with iron, ten strokes. Chickens continued to disappear. The king, growing irritated, lifted the penalty to 50 strokes. More chickens were lost. The king, feeling mocked, lifted it to 75 strokes. Chickens were yet pilfered. And the king, now full of wrath, set the punitive measure at 100 strokes, a severity doubtful the strongest man could survive. And then the thief was found. To the surprise and dismay of all, not least the king, the chicken thief, was the king's mother. And the kingdom was stunned. The king's word cannot be broken, not even by the king. Justice must be served. Yet how can a man so brutalize his own mother? What would the king do? Would he uphold judgment and scorn mercy? Would he be merciful and make a mockery of justice? In theology, we call this the divine dilemma. The day of reckoning came. The king sat sternly on his throne. The chicken thief was brought before him. Tie the thief to the whipping post, he said sternly. Give her all 100 strokes at full strength. And if you refrain, you do so at the risk of your own life. The crowd was astonished as the thief, the king's mother, was tied to that stake. One more thing, the king said softly. He stood, removed his royal robe, walked down to his mother, wrapped his arms around her, held her tight, completely shielded her body, lovingly laid her head on his, looked directly at the executioners and said, Now, beat the thief. And the king, by his own decree, took the deadly beating for his mother. And that's the gospel. The king stepped off his throne. He descended into the muck and mire of your life and mine, guilty, offensive, rebellious as we are. And he wrapped his arms around us, and he absorbed the wrath of God. He said, now, beat the thief. Because the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the joys of God. This gospel of the kingdom, we cannot disassociate the gospel from the king. 
salvation, the name Jesus, means Jehovah is the one who saves. And God always has to descend and look upon the plight of his people and pay the price for their deliverance. Jesus was born into what theologians call the Second Temple period. The Old Testament lesson was that patriarchs and judges and kings and prophets all fail. The only hope is when Messiah comes. And first century Jews, they understood the lesson of exile. Man, including the chosen people, only makes a mess of things. We can't govern or lead without rebellion. We can't follow without trouble or corruption. Any righteousness, public or private, is short-lived. And we are cursed not only by external wickedness, but internal sin. And the only hope is when God comes down to save. The only hope is when Messiah comes. The only hope is when Shiloh comes. The blessed hope the scriptures talks about is when the king comes back for the restoration and the recreation of all things. And on that great and terrible day, there will be a resurrection of the dead and all the living and all the dead will be judged before that great king. And there will be a final judgment of heaven and hell at stake. And the point is, when the king comes back, it would be wise if you are found loyal. And it's not just a matter of wisdom. It is a matter of life and death. For when the king comes, only those under the blood escape the wrath of God to enjoy the joys of God forever. I have two beloved sons and one revered mother. Every morning, my mom prays, and in the spirit of her mind, she takes my two boys, Luke and Zach, both in college now. She walks them to the throne of grace, and there she leads all three of them in bowing before the king. And in that prayer, in the spirit of her supplication, it is a submission. It is a declaration. There is one king. He has all the authority. He has all the rights over our lives. We have none. And we have but one thing to say, yes, Lord, as we bow before his loving, sovereign, gracious will. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached. We don't like that verb, preaching. It can open us up to hypocrisy, yet the gospel has ever gone forth in that manner. For it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, 1 Corinthians. Preaching fixes the efficacy solely on what God has done. Preaching removes any doubt as to where the power or life or healing or deliverance is sourced. It is not in man. It is not in programs. It is not in projects. It is not in you. It is not in me. God, through Christ, is the power of the gospel and faith still comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and we preach Christ crucified to the Muslim and the Hindu and the Buddhist, a stumbling block and to the secular humanist foolishness because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And to be clear, I'm not talking about preaching emanating forth from this wooden pulpit or in this sanctified place. No. Preaching is the verbal proclamation of all of God's people in all of the world, in the marketplace, in your living room, in the cafes, in the restaurants, on buses, on trains, in the street, on the park, and the university campuses, and the halls of power through art and through music and and dance, and drama, and video, and writing, through every medium, and out of every personality. Preaching is incumbent on all of God's men, and all of God's women of every age. 
Our biblical role is crystal clear. We are messengers, we are announcers, we are town criers. We open up our mouths and we point to Jesus. And this is why in the Bible, spirit filling always affects our speech. Old Testament prophets and New Testament priests, Zacharias, Mary, Elizabeth, John, Jesus, Stephen, Peter, the spirit outpoured at Pentecost. When Jesus becomes real to us, the fire of heaven is kindled within and so enraptured with Jesus, we cannot contain him. It's fire within our bones and we must open our mouth and vent to the world the glories of Jesus that have been unleashed within. And that fire is not from us. It is the glory of encountering God Most High. He has visited us. He has filled us with His Spirit. And we cannot contain the glory. It must burst out of us. And the wonder that we are experiencing being unleashed to the world. So we say with Jesus in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach. And I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities because for this purpose I've been sent. We say with Paul, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And we stand in the marketplace and lift our voice over the bad news of our times. And we say, God has saved us from God for God. And that obedience, as all obedience must, come with a price tag. Our assignment is to verbally transmit and lovingly act out the gospel, to learn language and culture, to be friendly and faithful, ready in season and out, contextually present these truths. But along the way, I've noticed that Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus, they love it when I dig wells or provide schools or clothing or education, and they hate it when I preach the gospel. Social ministries make us loved. Preaching makes us hated. In the context of our passage, verse 9, Jesus reminds us that we're going to be hated, not loved, in the course of our unfolding assignment. You see, if our goal is to be universally loved, we have not understood the gospel. We haven't understood its implications and we have not understood love itself. For the most loving thing that you can do is open your mouth and preach the gospel. For this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world to all the nations. The global population now exceeds 7 billion. 42% of that 7 billion are located in 7,000 or more unreached people groups. And that word nations in the scriptures is ethne. It's the social, linguistic, ethno peoples of the world. 3.15 billion in that 42% around the world today. They haven't heard this wonderful gospel. Haven't had to wrestle with it. They have inadequate access. Yes, there's lost here in our decaying inner cities. Yes, there's lost in greedy corporate America. Yes, there are lost in our outwardly idyllic suburbs full of depression and vice. Yes, there are lost on our secular campuses. Yes, indeed, here is part of the world. But the assertion of this text is not that the here is being neglected, but that the there, the rest of the world, every nation is at a disadvantage. Do not join your voice to the swelling ranks of those who would twist this scripture and others 
to devote primary attention here at home. When Jesus commissioned the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, let me remind you of this inconvenient truth, that none of the disciples were from Jerusalem, none of the disciples were from Judea, none of the disciples were from Samaria, none of the disciples were from the uttermost parts of the earth. He was not telling them to stay at home. He was telling them to go and to take this message where it did not exist and to proclaim Christ where Christ had not been named the near is being assumed it is the far that is being urged this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world amongst every nation when it comes to the allotment of resources it's always the far that suffer still today globally about 97 percent of missions giving sons daughters and dollars goes to places that are Christianized. And only 3% goes to that 42% of the world, that Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu world. And last year, Americans spent more on bubblegum and dog food than they did on the cause of global missions. I'm not asking you to neglect the near. I'm just saying that if 42% of the world doesn't have access to the gospel, Shouldn't at least 42% of our missionaries and our finances and our prayers go there? For this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world to every nation, every people group as a witness. That word you know is where we get the word martyr. The gospel has ever gone forth under pressure. Favorite story of mine comes from Rome in 258 AD. Emperor Valerian had issued an edict. He wanted all the riches of the church. He was marching Sixtus II, Bishop of Rome, to his execution. He walked by a young man named Lawrence. And Lawrence cried out to the bishop, My father, are you going so soon and leaving me behind? And Sixtus said, Don't worry, Lawrence, you'll be with me in three days. Lawrence was arrested. The emperor demanded the treasures of the church. Lawrence asked for three days. He went, gave away what little money he had, collected all the widows and orphans, brought them before the emperor. He said, here, here's the treasures of the church. The emperor wasn't amused, and so he ordered that Lawrence would be roasted alive on a gridiron. They chained him to this metal grate, lit a fire, and began to burn him alive. Under great torment, Lawrence, I imagine him saying it with a smile, looked at his persecutors and said, you may turn me over now. I'm done on this sign. And then with his last breath, he prayed for the people of Rome. Heard a story from Bangladesh about a believer and he would not recant his faith. He had left Islam. So they brought his young son in front of him and progressively cut pieces of his young son off the body. But this brave father, despite his agony, would not recant. Maybe you've seen the news in Egypt in the last few years where Coptic churches have been bombed. A Muslim television host that was broadcast internationally interviewed a widow and she said, because of Jesus, because I love him, he loves me. Not only do I forgive the ones who killed my husband, I love them. And the Muslim commentator couldn't believe what he was seeing. Back in the studio, he put his hands on his head. He said, I don't understand this. If anyone killed my family, I would never forgive them. These Christians are made from a different substance. These Christians are made of steel. What is it 
on the day of great pain and agony that causes Lawrence to smile, crack a joke, and pray? What was it that helped that father in Bangladesh hold out when his son was screaming? What was it in that widow when she lost her husband to forgive and love? What was that in them? I'm afraid on the day of my testing, I'll squeal like a stuck pig. And I've determined that the only way we can be faithful on that difficult day is if it's only the last installment on a life that has been lived in cruciform fashion and day after day after day after day we've said yes to Jesus and no to self so when we come to that last desperation we realize it's only the final installment of our dying and our living is about to begin. You can't expect to die well tomorrow if you don't die well today. Because this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world amongst every people group as a witness. And then the end will come. I'm a missionary because I want to go home. This world is not my home. I don't belong here. I'm a stranger, the Bible says. I'm a pilgrim and an alien. I am so weary of the wickedness and the rhetoric and the anger and the filth and the junk all around me. I'm tired of sin and curse and crying, night, darkness and death. But it's not essentially what's out there that bothers me. It's what's in here. I know what's in here. I know what I struggle with. I know my sin. I know how foolish Like a dog, I go back to vomit and struggle with the same things over and over again. I know I'm forgiven. I know my eternity is secured. But I also know that right now, I am bound and tormented by the same carnal things that manifest in me. I want to be liberated eternally from that. And I groan with all the creation for the liberation of the sons and daughters of men when Jesus will come back and all of these struggles and all of these pains and all of these mistakes and all of these insecurities and all of these weaknesses are terminally dealt with, never more to go back to them. I long for that day. I agree with Paul. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And I don't know what will be chosen for me, but this I know to be with Christ is far better I love Christmas we're coming up to that Christmas season and when we were children our family tradition was to open our presents early Christmas morning we would buy them for one another we'd stick them under the tree we'd wrap them we'd sort them in piles we'd try and figure out what they were and anticipation would build as we would look forward to that great Christmas morning where we could open our presents Early on Christmas morning, if my father would have emerged from his bedchamber and said to my sisters and I, and these dishes of the kitchen will be washed and all the tables cleaned as a witness and then we'll open our presents, what do you think I would have done? I would have grabbed my sisters. I would have run to the kitchen. I wouldn't have cared if they wanted to go or not. Let's get this thing done. Let's wash these dishes. Let's clear this table so we can open our presents. The great gift of eternal life in the presence of Jesus, free from sin, free from wickedness, free from pain, free from night, free from the curse. It is out there waiting for us to open it. And all we have to do is wash the Father's dishes. So the question is, 
What are you waiting for? Have you forgotten where home is? Have you forgotten that you are a stranger and a pilgrim and an alien? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world amongst every unreached people as a witness. And then the end will come. The king stands among us this morning and he doesn't stand cap in hand begging. The king gives commands. The gospel all ends and Acts begins with the commission to go and make disciples of all the ethnic. Why have you not obeyed the clear black and white instructions of Jesus? Do you have from him overriding orders to stay? On what authority do you stay when you have been so clearly commanded to go? I find it troubling that certain posts have no trouble being filled. Medium to large churches, when vacant, always have applications. When the positions of district superintendent or college president, CEO come open, those vacancies are never open long. I'm not denigrating their importance. I'm just saying there are long lines of applicants to jobs, positions, and ministries here at home, and no one is standing in line to go to the unreached. Why is it a joy to be considered for a leadership position here in America and a cross to be asked to lead the unreached to glory? Jesus commanded us to go. I don't think we should agonize or wrestle on whether we should go or not. I think the agony should be on whether we're called to stay. For this gospel will be preached in all the world to every people group as a witness. And then the end will come. Just close your eyes and bow your heads. I know that in three minutes, if you need to leave for work, you may. But I want us to open the altars without fanfare and without music. I just want to ask you to come and pray. Respond to this message. Maybe ask Jesus a question you haven't asked him before. Lord, do you really want me to stay? Or am I meant to obey that black and white commission that you repeated all through the scriptures? So right now, would you just come? I want everyone to come. Just come to the altars, kneel, pray. If the altars fill up, kneel in the aisle. Let's just listen to Jesus and what he's saying. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit. Let's make this room a holy place. If you want to kneel at your chair, that's fine too. I'm just asking all of us to respond to the Holy Spirit. Let your body position reflect your heart. Don't just sit there. Move somewhere. Kneel somewhere. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. If you need to slip out, do that quietly. That's fine.
you know this chorus, sing it with me. All to Jesus I surrender all. To Him I freely give. I will ever. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I want us to find one other person and just ask each other this question. Is the Lord asking you to go? Or is the Lord asking you to stay? And then whatever is that answer, as best as you can discern it, pray for one another to have quick obedience and firm commitment to doing what Jesus has determined for your life. So find someone else Just ask him, did the Lord tell you to go? Has the Lord told you to stay? And then pray over one another, whatever that answer is.